daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin, Beijing. Coming up, Xi Jinping tells Anthony Albanese that China-Australia ties are now on the right path. Joe Biden has pushed Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for tactical pause in the Israel-Hamas war. China continues to top the list regarding the global patent filings, and we are going to take a look at a new artificial intelligence chatbot launched by Elon Musk. So, if you want to listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has called on Beijing and Canberra to be partners of mutual trust and fulfillment. The Chinese leader made the remark in a meeting with Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese in Beijing. Xi Jinping said bilateral ties had embarked on the right path of improvement, noting some problems had been worked out. He suggested that China and Australia have no historical grudges or fundamental conflicts of interest. And for his part, Anthony Albanese, the Australia Prime Minister, said Australia had an interest in the continued stable growth of the Chinese economy, as well as China's ongoing engagement with the rest of the world. He added, "Greater understanding is coming from higher-level dialogue and people-to-people exchanges." In the meantime, Chinese Premier Li Qiang also held a talks with Anthony Albanese in Beijing on Tuesday. The two sides issued a statement after this particular talk, reiterating about the importance of the bilateral ties and vowing to engage in trade, climate, cultural exchanges, among others. So, joining us now on the line is Professor Chen Hong, director of the Australian Studies Centre with East China Normal University. Welcome back. So,、uh, President Xi Jinping said、uh, China and Australia should follow the trends of the times and build a China-Australia relationship based on common interests,、uh, whereby we treat each other as equals, seek common ground while reserving our opinions over differences, and engage in a sort of mutually beneficial cooperation.、Uh, I'm quoting President Xi Jinping here. So, do you think、um, what President Xi Jinping has elaborated here represents the right path or the right、uh, model for these two countries to get along with each other? Yeah, I totally agree. As between you know any two countries, there are convergence of you know common interests in、uh, China-Australia relations, while differences could occur or subsist. As、uh, President Xi you know points out, you know China believes that the principles to guide the bilateral Relations should be mutual understanding and mutual respect. Both countries need to seek common grounds while recognizing and respecting differences of one another's opinions and stances. That said, of course, neither side should challenge or even provoke the core interests of the other side. In particular, when dealing with issues related to sovereignty and territorial you know, integrity, I think for the、uh, 50 years since China and Australia established a diplomatic relationship in 1972. Bilateral relationship between the two countries has been developing in the、uh, fast track exactly because of this principle. You know, differences could occur in any international relationship, but the most important thing is to seek common ground for you know effective cooperation rather than letting differences you know override the common and mutual interests.、Mm. The、uh, previous Australian government under Scott Morrison had tried to instigate tensions with differences between China and Australia in their political system, ways of you know governance. And cultures as the pretext for such tensions and confrontations. The years of the deterioration of the bilateral relations between the、uh, mid、uh, 2017 and mid 2022 were the most dismaying page in the history of、uh, China-Australia relations. That neither country, not China and not Australia, certainly under the current Albanese government, would want that page to ever return. So, as、mm. President Xi said, cooperation and mutual interests are the trend of、mm. times that is irreversible. Mm. So in the meantime, President Xi Jinping has also criticized what he calls as the moves to forge exclusive cliques. 
uh, group politics or block confrontation here in the Asia Pacific region. Frankly speaking, who do you think is really attempting to do that? And do you think, say, block confrontation or group politics are the solution to some of the worldwide challenges we are facing today? Well, since the United States started to promote and、uh, influence its、uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, which is purported to contain to deter and sabotage China's development, the most important tactic it has been、uh, taking. Is、uh, to enlist the collaboration、uh, of its、uh, so-called allies and partners. The United States has been declining, you know, its overall national strength. So it has been trying to coax and coerce its allies, you know, or and partners to、uh, act as its pawns, you know, to serve its hegemonic strategy. You know, so we can see Washington has been, you know, reviving, for example, the Five Eyes Alliance, repackaging the Quad, which basically in the beginning. Was a temporary group for disaster relief during the、uh, Indian Ocean、uh, tsunami in 2004. But the United States has been trying to make this group quad to act as an anti-China clique. And of course, recently there is also you know AUKUS, which is essentially a military cohort, and IPEF, and you know economic framework with the aim to ostracize China from the、uh, economic and trade cooperation in the region. Such cliques are simply illogical in the rationale of their development. Because first of all, China is the second largest economy in the world, and cannot you know it is simply impossible to pretend that China does not exist in today's world economic order. And secondly, the trend of the world today is to peace and cooperation and development against the background of globalization. So such small groupings are against the tide of history. They are divisive, and ultimately would fail because of its basic. Fatal illogicality and impracticality.、Mm. So, apart from calling for closer economic ties, bilateral economic ties, I mean, as well as more cooperation in some of the emerging areas like climate change and promoting green economy,、uh, Xi Jinping also suggested to Albanese that China and Australia might be able to seek some third-party cooperation、uh, to help South Pacific Island nations. Do you think that is likely to、um, happen or materialize in real practice? Well, I think what the president she tries to do、uh, was to explain to Albanese that China does not pose as any threat to Australia's presence, you know, Australia's position, Australia's interest in the South Pacific. Australia is a South Pacific country, and by tradition, you know, in history. Australia has close and complex relations and involvement with、uh, Pacific Island countries, and China is aware of this historical fact and respects Australia's relationship with the PIC, the Pacific Island countries. In the recent ten years or so, you know, China's cooperation and aid programs in the Pacific have been warmly welcomed by the governments and peoples in this region. You know, China's、uh, projects and programs, in particular within the framework of the Belt and Road Initiative. Have brought substantive benefits to the island country countries. Australia somehow, I think, especially with instigation from the United States, somehow thought that China's aid, cooperation, and investment programs are purported to compete with Australia. As a matter of fact, this is a, this is a misunderstanding or misguided conception of the fact that China's economic programs in this region are economic in, in nature, with no political motives or purposes. So China's position as President Xi. You know, was saying was was、uh, reiterating is that China is willing to carry out third-party、uh, cooperation you know, with、uh, India's、uh, island countries. That is to say, China is open to work with Australia in cooperating with the、uh, South Pacific countries to improve the local infrastructure, improve the economy, uplift the people's、uh, livelihood. China does not want to exclude other countries, any、mm-hmm. other country. I think Australia needs to realize that China is a partner. Not a rival or competitor in the Pacific.、Mm. So of course, I mean Albanese is widely seen as a、uh, as a pretty pragmatic politician, which I guess is why、uh, Australia has moved to repair ties with China since he came into office. So, to what extent do you think such pragmatism? That he、uh, represents maybe is needed in in today's international politics. Yeah, I think actually Albanese, as you said, is a pragmatic,、uh, pragmatic, you know, politician. Yeah, you know, and he is totally aware that China is Australia's, you know, largest trade partner, the largest source of international students and tourists. When the two countries, China and Australia, established 
diplomatic relationship in 1972, the bilateral trade volume was a mere 100 million you know, US dollars. But last year, you know, even still under the sway of the COVID-19 pandemic, the volume of trade was as much as over 220 billion US dollars. So in 2007, you know, China overtook Japan to become Australia's largest trade partner and has remained as such. So apart from commodity trade, we've got tourism, international education, finance, healthcare, aged care. These are all, you know, fears where China and Australia work in conjunction with each other to achieve enormous win-win outcomes. So anyone can see it is simply irrational for the uh, previous government, Morrison government, in the past several years to, you know, deliberately, you know, damage or even, you know, uh, devastate its uh, relationship with China. There are no historical grudges, as President Xi said, or fundamental structural differences between the two, two countries, nor are there any territorial disputes. So China and Australia are important countries in the Pacific, Asia-Pacific, and we have the responsible, uh, responsibility, the joint responsibility to safeguard our mutually beneficial relationship, which I think in turn will definitely contribute to the peace, you know, stability, and also prosperity in the Asia-Pacific region. Mm. So the final question before we let you go, mm. Professor, um, some people say to Australia or to Canberra, there is actually a, a puzzle because Australia needs China for the sake of its own economy and trade prosperity, but it also needs the United States for the sake of uh, security and military alliances. They say, judging from Albanese's visit to China this time around, as well as his most recent trip to, uh, to the United States, Australia is yet to solve this puzzle. But in your observation, is there such a puzzle for Australia? Uh, I think the United States has its target to maintain its uh, hegemony in the uh, Asia-Pacific region and also in the world and try to enlist, as we said, you know, the support from its allies and its uh, uh, you know, partners. So the United States apparently has identified Australia as a key chess piece on its uh, you know, anti-China strategic chessboard. But Australia has its own national interests, long-term national interests, to look after. So some people often say that Australia does not have an independent foreign policy. Upon this, I do not agree. I think Australia does have its uh, independence in making foreign policy decisions. The recent improvement of the, the bilateral relations between China and Australia shows clearly that Australia is able to make strategically, you know, you know, meaningful decisions to safeguard its own interests. There are, of course, headwinds and pressures from both internally and from the outside, especially from Washington. But Australia needs to be sure-footed and withstand such opposing forces. China never asks Australia to take side with us. The U.S. has been doing so. But recently, when Albanese was visiting the United States, Biden literally warned him. You know, he warned Albanese that there are risks, I quote, there are risks in dealing with China. That was uh, what Biden said. And he also, Biden also went on to say to deal with China, he wants Australia to trust and verify, which means don't trust. So this is a blatant interference with Australia's foreign policy, independence of foreign policy decisions. Nothing could be more outstanding than such unconcealed, you know, brazen political interference. So I think Australia needs to be vigilant of the ulterior motives over there in Washington. And China-Australia relations need to you know, develop not just in trade and investment, but also in various other areas and aspects. After mm. all, this is a, there's a comprehensive strategic partnership between our two countries, China and Australia. Mm, thank you very much for reminding us about that very fact. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Professor Chen Hong, Director of the Australian Studies Center with East China Normal University in Shanghai. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin Beijing. Israel's war in Gaza has entered the second month. Israel has vowed to destroy the Hamas militants over their attacks, which claimed 1,400 lives in early October. On the other hand, the Gaza death toll has soared above 10,000 currently. 
with UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warning that the war-torn Gaza Strip is becoming a quote-unquote graveyard for children. In a Monday phone call, U.S. President Joe Biden pushed Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to agree to quote-unquote technical pauses. Netanyahu, on his part, has stressed that there will be no ceasefire until Hamas releases all hostages. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Wang Jing, Middle East expert with Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So,、uh, looking back、um, at the trajectory, the war trajectory over the past month, Israel has first of all hammered. Those targets in the Gaza Strip before sending its ground forces, ground troops to、uh, to stage a kind of encirclement of the Gaza city, the capital city of the region, and some military analysts have now warned that looking ahead, there will be several weeks of very brutal house-to-house fighting in Gaza. What is your analysis, and、um, in your in your observation, what? What do you think are some of the issues that might complicate Israel's military operation? I think yes, we 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 have、uh, already witnessed and will still witness the, the very、uh, intensified house-to-house、uh, fighting in Gaza Strip. Given the Israelis'、uh, slogan what,、uh, is to is so-called eliminate or eradicate. The Hamas presence in Gaza Strip. So that means that it's really ground forces. They should, on, on the one hand,、uh, damage or、uh, destruct the Hamas presence as many as possible in the Gaza Strip, and on the other hand, to occupy the, the lands.、Uh, maybe not all of the land in Gaza Strip, but the, the most the majority、uh, of the very key points in the Gaza Strip. Uh, so that means、uh, to that, that point, that means that、uh, the, the the war affairs in Gaza Strip, especially the ground ground warfares, will、uh, continue to be more、uh, escalated into more intensified scale in the in the future. So I think yes, it will something、uh, that maybe、uh, further complicate Israeli operation.、Uh, for example, that given the humanitarian crisis is, is uh, uh, very quickly in- increasing and growing, and this humanitarian crisis in the Gaza Strip, especially the humanitarian for the Gaza、uh, civilians, actually they add a new pressure to Israeli's military operation. And we have already witnessed the opposition opinion even from the United States to to some Israel. Is really the ground forces operation. So I think this will become、um, a new obstacle. And meanwhile, we can also get that the hostages taken by Hamas and other、um, militias in the Gaza Strip they might also become the factor that to further complicate Israel's operation. So I think in the future, a lot of things uh, will uh, make Israel that they have to take into consideration、uh, for their uh, uh, military、mm. actions into in the Gaza Strip.、Mm. So why do you think the mounting international pressure on Israel to agree to a humanitarian ceasefire? Has not worked so far. And by the way, how would you comment on this particular U.S. behavior of opposing a ceasefire but calling for a technical pause?、Uh, first of all, the humanitarian. When we talk about humanitarian factor, it's of course very important. It attracts the attention from international society. So also, the international society they give、uh, a lot of pressure towards Israel、uh, to hope. In the hope that Israel would give up the military operation based upon the factors of so-called humanitarian crisis in the Gaza Strip, but we have to know that any ceasefire, especially when we're talking about Israel, the the precondition、uh, should be that Israel gives up their military operation based on their own willingness and、uh, on their own decision. But from the Israeli perspective, that、uh, the Hamas presence is still there, while the Hamas should be responsible. I mean. From the perspective of Israel, then Hamas should be responsible of all the crises and the following、uh, conflicts that erupted after October the seventh.、Uh, so that is why Israel believes this should not their responsibilities to be criticized in the humanitarian crisis in the Gaza Strip, and also Israel under the very strong internal pressure opinions, especially from opposition groups that the Israeli government and as well as the Israeli military forces, they have to take actions. Uh, very strongly against the, the Hamas presence in the Gaza Strip, so that is why、uh, the ceasefire from the perspective of Israel might not work、uh, even today. So,、uh, and meanwhile, we cannot forget the United States. 
uh, United States, on the one hand, they try to, to some extent, they, they try to mediate uh, the, 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 the two hope, in the hope that to bridge the gap, bring the gap between Israel and uh, the regional states, uh, and also hope that Israel could suspend its military, for, military forces actions against the Gaza Strip. But also, you have already mentioned that the United States believe they should not be the kind of the ceasefire, but actually a very tactical uh, force, mm, yeah. because the United States understands very uh, clearly that Israel cannot and would not uh, end its military operations against the Gaza Strip. So that might this this might explain that why United States hope to change some term in the to persuade Israel uh, to stop the military actions. But also, I think the United States has had their own. Uh, explanation, because from the perspective of Israel and the United States, Hamas is so-called a terrorist group, so they don't, they don't want to talk with ter- so-called terrorists. So from the so United States, I think they should uh, uh, they should insert more attention, more efforts into the mediation peace process between Israelis and uh, and the Palestinians in the future to have the local people there, but not from their own perspective, the Israeli perspective. Mm. So, do you think it makes sense for 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 the United States to start thinking about now who will govern Gaza, who will take over the leadership of Gaza uh, by the time when Israel achieves its military aim of dismantling Hamas? Uh, for 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 example, Palestinian President Mohammed Abbas has said that. Uh, Palestinian authority under his leadership could return to power in Gaza in the future only if a comprehensive political solution can be found for this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Why do you think the Palestinian Authority is not interested uh, in, in terms of returning to Gaza immediately? Because actually, it's not very possible or very not likely to maintain a very sustainable. Governance for the Palestinian Authority in Gaza Strip in the very short term, within the very short term, because we, uh, when we talk about the returning to Gaza Strip for the Palestinian Authority, or especially for the political uh, faction of Fatah, uh, the, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, we are talking about the very. Uh, we, ha- we have to remember the history that uh, just uh, uh, it has been nearly uh, more nearly. Two decades. I mean, after 20, uh, 2007, that uh, the Fatah presence or the, P, uh, the, the PA, um, the Palestinian Authority presence in the Gaza Strip, uh, has already been suspended, has uh, has been uh, cleared out of the uh, Gaza Strip due to the due to the very conflict with Hamas. So it's actually very difficult for for so the PA to to establish their own structure in the Gaza Strip in the very short term. And then on the other hand, now the PA as well as the Fatah, they also face a very strong internal criticism as well as internal pressure, given that some of the Palestinians perceive the PA and the Fatah cooperation with Israel and the United States as a kind of betrayal to to Palestinians, uh, to their liberation uh, efforts, uh, liberation course. So that is why it's very difficult for, for the PA as well for the Palestinian Authority mm-hmm. and the Fatah to, to, to do that in the very short term. Okay, so we still have like 90 seconds before we need to finish this uh, discussion with you today. China is currently the rotating chair of the UN Security Council. And actually on Monday, China, together with the UAE, called on this uh, council to adopt a quote-unquote actionable resolution on Palestinian issue. So what do you think China has contributed to the cause in this direction over the past month? I think China has already contributed a lot. Because on one hand, China, uh, on many occasions, especially on the United Nations uh, the platform that China calls for the, 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 the related sides, especially Israel and Palestinians, to reach this fire as soon as possible. And uh, on the other hand, China used the platform, the United Nations platform, as well as the rotating chair of the United Nations Security Council, uh, to to set the the very schedule for the Palestinian issue to, prior, to put the Palestinian issue very priority in the United Nations uh, Security Council agenda. So I think China will continue to uh, contribute a lot to the peace process to have the Palestinian people there and also to end. The, the war there as soon as possible in the future. Mm, thank you very much for joining us. That was Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor and a Middle East expert with Northwest University in the city of Xi'an, China. 
You are listening to World Today. For more, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. We'll be back after a short break. This is World Today. I'm Ding Hanin Beijing. Poland Investment and Trade Agency China Office Chief Representative Andrzej Juchniewicz has described the ongoing China International Import Expo as an excellent platform for foreign businesses to trade with China. More than 170 Polish companies have participated in the CIE since the CIE's launch back in 2018. Many are said to have successfully found、uh, distributors and business partners through this platform. In a conversation with my colleague Xu Yawen, Mr. Juchniewicz said that Poland also plays a vital role in the Belt and Road Initiative, adding his country is aiming to facilitate further cooperation between Central and Eastern European countries and China. Let's take a listen to this conversation. Andre, thanks for joining me. As a regular participant in the CIE, you have assisted many Polish companies in establishing relationships and entering the Chinese market. Could you share with us some stories of tangible benefits that Polish companies have received through participating in the CIE? Yes, definitely. Thank you for having us、uh, for the conference and、uh, for the interview. 2023. This is going to be our fifth time that Poland is participating at the CIE Expo. Altogether, in those five editions, we accounted for more than 170 Polish companies attending the big event. Definitely, we can say that most、uh, happy to be at the event, and、uh, most potent Polish companies are from food, agricultural sector, cosmetics, machinery, and technology. So, definitely, in those few sectors, we see great potential on the Chinese market. Those Polish companies that did attend the CIE, also in other trade fairs that we've organized in China,、uh, have uh, found their importers, potential importers or distributors, especially in in food like、uh, milk products, dairy products, chocolates, and also cosmetics. Cosmetics are doing quite well in China, especially、uh, selling、uh, to Chinese consumers through、uh, cross-border e-commerce. This year we have a 136 square meter national pavilion, so I invite everyone to join and have a look what Poland is offering, what what Poland best products can be seen during CIE in Shanghai.、Uh, we divided the pavilion into three sections. One is food agricultural products, so we have healthy products from Aronia and Blueberry. We have uh, other uh, dairy products. The second section is cosmetics. So we have quite a few well-established and well-known Polish brands and companies that are trying to sell to Chinese markets. So we hope through that platform, through this year's CIE, they can find potential importers and distributors. There are shampoos, skincare products, and the third section. And we feel very happy that they finally joined. It's pet products, and we see great potential, especially in pet products from Poland, from Europe, from abroad. To enter the Chinese market, so、mm-hmm. definitely those those three big consumer sectors that we try to sell into China. So CIE has been a great platform for Polish companies alike to be much closer to to Chinese consumers and definitely to sell to sell to China and export to China. In the meantime, Chinese investment in Poland has grown significantly over the past decade. Chinese information and communication leaders, such as Huawei and ZTE, as well as financial institutions like China Construction Bank, have all established operations there in Poland. Could you elaborate more details on China's investments in Poland and the impact they have made? Yes, definitely. One of our biggest parts of our work, Polish Investment and Trade Agency, is bringing Chinese investments and promoting Poland as an investment destination for Chinese counterparts and Chinese companies. And especially in those,、uh, I would say, three, four, five years, we're seeing great potential in e-mobility sector. So everything regarding、uh, lithium batteries or upstream and downstream products, and Poland plays a leading role in that battery supply chain, being the second largest producer. Of batteries worldwide, and this is also why Chinese companies are now flocking into Poland and Central Eastern Europe to build factories, build、uh, greenfield factories, and、uh, support the、uh, green energy transition and automotive transition 
in EU. So already lithium-ion batteries account for almost 3% of Polish exports. That is more than 9 billion euro of goods. And in those few uh, past years, we've uh, already seen a part of Chinese supply chain already going into Poland. Companies like Wotai Huarong, Capchem uh, from, uh, from Shenzhen and other parts of China. And definitely this is a great potential of Chinese companies to be uh, located in Central Eastern Europe and in Poland. But lithium-ion batteries is only one part of, of the equation, I would say. There are many other sectors that Chinese companies are very potent, like machinery, ICT, R&D now is also in biotech. We are having quite a few Chinese questions and locations, forms from Chinese private companies that are looking to be located into CE. So this is definitely finally now a big part of Chinese uh, greenfield investments and FDI investments to be more present into uh, Europe and more present in, in Poland and CE countries. Well, we talk about uh, Poland-China's bilateral trade relations. Uh, we know Poland is China's largest trading partner in Central and Eastern Europe. In the meantime, China ranks as Poland's second largest trading partner. So based on your observation, what main factors are driving the bilateral trade between China and Poland? Well, yes, definitely China is the second biggest trade partner of Poland. From our perspective, the Polish exports to China are very weak. So this is also why we also encourage Chinese companies to invest in Poland to, to have this proportion and balance more in favor. This is also the biggest part of our work to promote Polish exports to China. This is why CIIE and also other big trade shows and B2B meetings in China are very crucial for our work to promote Polish products and Polish brands and Polish exports to Chinese importers and distributors. Everyone is thinking that China is a great potential, a great market to be in. Definitely not an easy one. That's why uh, Polish entities like us, like ours and Polish government are trying to provide the, the information to Polish companies how to enter the Chinese market and uh, how to safely export into China. During the recent Third Belt and Road Forum, China committed to supporting an open world economy and promoting a new form of economic globalization. This includes removing all restrictions on foreign investment access in the manufacturing sector, expanding market access for digital and other products, as well as entering into free trade agreements and investment protection treaties with more countries. What's your take on the message China sent? Of course, everyone wants to be into in the Chinese market. The less barriers that are in China, it's in favor of Polish and EU companies alike. So everyone wants to have a really leveled playing field. So any restrictions from the Chinese side that are going to be down may, makes the Chinese economy and makes uh, foreign investments going up into, into the Chinese markets. Definitely the governments of and companies from abroad, and especially in EU and Poland and Central Eastern Europe, will be more willing to invest into the Chinese market. Geographically speaking, Poland is considered the bridge between China and Central and Eastern Europe. How do you view the significant role that Poland plays in further facilitating cooperation between China and the Central and Eastern European countries? Yes, definitely. Because of that strategic uh, central location, geographic location of Poland, Poland has been very potent in uh, BRI, Belt and Road Initiative. Also, Poland was, was one of the first European countries to be added into AIIB. So definitely that strategic location helps Poland to be more potent in not only CE-China cooperation, but also in uh, EU vis-a-vis, uh, European Union vis-a-vis China, political and uh, economy and investment cooperation. Just to be added, uh, Poland is 30% of the whole CEC economic and population-wise, so definitely the cooperation between China and Poland will be the most crucial in terms of also cooperation between China and CEC countries. So CIE has been a great platform to promote, not only directly uh, Poland or uh, other countries, but also there is a pavilion for CEE, uh, Central Eastern European products to China, also at the China International Import Fair, but also other trade fairs directly related into uh, CEC cooperation, like the trade fair organized every year in Ningbo, and all other events also in, in cultural terms and, and logistics, political, cultural, tourism. So the cooperation between CEC 
and China definitely let's hope that was going to be picked up in the coming years. Poland Investment and Trade Agency China Office Chief Representative Andrei Juchinowicz talking to my colleague Xu Yawen. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology, and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. A new report by the World Intellectual Property Organization shows that China is continuing to hold this very top position in terms of the number of patent applications, with 1.58 million last year. That accounted for nearly half of the global number. Some 3.46 million patent applications were made globally in 2022, marking three consecutive years of increase as well as a new record high. China, the U.S., Japan, South Korea, and Germany had the biggest numbers of applications last year. So, for more, my colleague Zhao Yang earlier had a talk with Andy Mock, a tech analyst and a senior research fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. So, Andy, first of all, China continues to hold the top position in the number of、uh, patent applications, which is、uh, 1.58 million in the year 2022. So, what is behind the growing number of patent applications of China? And does the growing momentum mean that China is an innovation-driven economy now? Well, Zhao Yang, I think this is such an important statistic because. It does represent China's transition to an innovation-driven economy, and I think we can understand this、uh, from a couple of perspectives. So, first of all, China is an enormous market, and the closer you are to end customers, whether they're businesses or consumers,、uh, the more deeply you understand market requirements, and of course, that plays a valuable role in R and D. But China, of course, has an enormous talent pool. Uh, of science, technology, engineering, and management、uh, graduates. So that's another very important factor. And finally,、uh, government policy. So the Chinese government has emphasized the importance of、uh, science and technology leadership, and I think we are seeing the results of that.、Mm. And how do you view China's efforts for the IPR protection? Well, this again, I think, is something that if we look at from a longer-term perspective,、uh, is An area that China has made remarkable strides, and it's not surprising、uh, because, of course,、uh, China's economy and society has evolved and developed over the decades since the beginning of economic reform. So every part of the legal system of society、uh, is getting better and better, and I think IPR protection is is no exception to this. Mm. Earlier, you mentioned the policy, and Chinese authorities have released an action plan to stimulate the technology innovation capacity of enterprises. So, how is that important? Do you think for a country's productivity level, the economy, and security in today's world? Well, certainly, especially for a country like China,、uh, government policy, government support plays a very, very important role. And I think we see here、uh, that China is looking to make progress across all areas. So, of, of course, in at universities in terms of R and D、uh, with SOEs, but also in particular with private enterprise as well. So, again, I think China brings、uh, perhaps a unique ability to coordinate、uh, major policy initiatives across every aspect of society. Mm. And Chinese telecom giant Huawei actually remained the single largest buyer of patents for some years. So this is even under the backdrop of the U.S. ban. So what does this say about Huawei and its future development? And which areas are their patents in? Well, I think Huawei, you know, long has been、uh, seen as a champion of innovation、uh, R and D. Uh, not just in China, but really around the world. And despite some of the geopolitical attacks it has suffered, 
I think we've seen Huawei continue to invest something like 20% of revenue uh, in R&D. So I think that shows uh, the resourcefulness and the dedication of Huawei to technology innovation, but also I think serves uh, as an example of more broadly China's approach uh, that despite sanctions, despite uh, efforts to slow its technological rise, that in fact it's making it even more determined and even more resourceful uh, in achieving its goals. Mm. And we know that today's competition in the world is the competition of science, technology, and innovation. So how would you assess China's innovation capability? Uh, in the past, the people say Chinese companies learn from others, but is that the case that foreign companies are now beginning to learn from China? I think it absolutely is the case, Zhaoyang. Uh, you know, we can look uh, most recently that you know, that's been getting a lot of attention, uh, is electric vehicles. And we see that Chinese companies have not only been uh, technology leaders in batteries, which is one of the most important components for EVs, but even design and designing, uh, developing uh, vehicles that target different niches, uh, not just in China, but around the world. So I think what we're seeing is uh, leadership in pure technology, but also in design and marketing as well uh, from China. And certainly, I think many companies uh, and countries around the world are now looking to China for uh, inspiration. And besides China, the U.S., Japan, South Korea, and Germany had also the large number of patent applications last year. So could you please tell us more about this country's innovation and what are their uniqueness? Well, each of these countries brings, I think, important strength to the table. And I think this is the important point, that um, any efforts to reduce cross-border collaboration uh, really does not serve the interests of mankind, broadly speaking. There's still a number of uh, important challenges uh, to which technology can play a role. So I think that, you know, when you look at a Germany with its very strong history of manufacturing industrial equipment, um, Japan, of course, and the United States, uh, with its very well-developed, mature uh, ecosystem of research and development, that if people can work together, that that's much better, and bring their complementary strength uh, mm -hmm. together, that that's much better than uh, not doing so. Mm. And when we talk about the tech innovation today, we have to mention the AI development, the artificial intelligence. So how will it change our work and life and increase the productivity? And how should we regulate it at the same time, make good use of it to make sure it will benefit the human beings? Well, that's such a broad question that we could spend hours talking about. But let me focus on just one part that I do think is especially worth uh, paying attention to, and that is this idea of recursive innovation, which means that AI-powered robots can not only produce goods and services, but they can produce even better AI-powered robots that create even better AI-powered robots, and this can drive uh, advances in basic research to product development. So I think this is an area that China also uh, is well positioned in because of its manufacturing capabilities and its growing abilities in robotics. And what's the latest development of the ChatGPT in China? Well, you know, we are seeing uh, many, many companies uh, around the world uh, in the generative AI space, so using large language models uh, to create these uh, ChatGPT-like applications. And of course, China is in the race uh, with Baidu, uh, Alibaba, a number of other uh, Chinese companies uh, releasing products uh, in this category. Uh, so clearly, this is a, a very rapidly growing space with lots of opportunities. Andy Mock, tech analyst and a senior fellow with the Center for China and Globalization, talking to my colleague Zhao Yang. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You are listening to World Today. Elon Musk has released a new AI chatbot in a bid to take on OpenAI, Google, and Meta in this field. 
The new AI system is said to have real-time access to information from X, formerly Twitter, which Elon Musk claims is giving this system a massive advantage over other models. The tech billionaire has also touted that this particular chatbot is able to respond with a little humor. Uh, saying more personality will allow it to stand out in an increasingly crowded market, the so-called generative artificial intelligence companies have raised billions of dollars this year as investors are piling into this industry. So, joining us now on the line is Ina Tangen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. Welcome back. Ina, are you impressed by what、um, Elon Musk has said about his new、uh, AI chatbot? For example, do you think this、um, this touted real time access to information from X,、uh, formerly known as Twitter, will really give it a big advantage over other models? Well, unfortunately, not.、Uh, the truth is,、uh, X is full of misinformation. So, as they say, garbage in. Garbage out.、Uh, I'm sure it'll be very amusing,、um, but I'm not certain it's something that I would rely on. I mean, you have to remember this is the same guy who six days ago was talking about the dangers of AI. You know, we're, we're back、um, what is it?、Uh, June. He was saying, "Oh, we should all,、uh, you know, thousand、uh, leading tech guys should all chip in and say no. We will put a hiatus on this." Meanwhile, he was apparently working furiously. But I mean, literally every month. Since that time, he's been talking about the dangers of AI, and then all of a sudden he puts his out. So it looks looks a lot. Yeah. So can you elaborate more in this、uh, in this、uh, particular regard? Because, like you said, this this is a guy who、uh, for 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 many many years in a row has been talking about、uh, the possible danger, the possible disruption of AI. He was at the really at the business. Corporate forefront in terms of issuing warnings in this regard. So why is now why is he now perceived to be embracing the artificial intelligence? Well,、uh, it looks like a little bit of a desperate ploy to kind of do something with、uh, X. I mean, he bought it for forty-four billion,、uh, according to the latest things I've seen. It's it's worth half that much.、Uh, if you could find somebody who would, who buy it. His new chat AI is called Grok.、Yeah. It's a name that means "quote to understand" in tech circles.、And、he's saying it has few guardrails. Well, who does that remind you of?、Um, and it's a little bit ironic. I mean, everything he said. I mean, Musk was an early investor in generative AI. You know, he was、uh, involved in OpenAI. Invested between fifteen hundred million in the company. Then he tried to take it over. Right.、But、this is、mm-hmm. the guy who says it's dangerous. And then, after failing to take it over, he got out, and that was in 2018. And、uh, so, I mean, he's kind of all over the place.、Uh, it's, it's, you never know exactly where he's coming from, but he certainly is entertaining.、Mm. So, since last year's purchase of Twitter by Musk, this、um, particular social media platform has has been losing revenue or losing profits because many. Many of the regular advertisers have decided to pull their spending over their concern about his relaxing of content moderation on this platform. So, do you think the introduction of this、um, particular chat bot will help, you know, boost engagement or sales on on acts today? I'm. I hate to say, it, I, I doubt it. I mean, I think a lot of people will be curious to what.、Uh, A chatbot that has few guardrails actually says or does, but other than the amusement factor, I just don't know that this is something that you're going to use in your business.、Um, you know, re- remember the idea is not to have a comic,、uh, something you can laugh at. You can do that in many other ways using the internet. The re- idea is that you know this chat AI is it's supposed to produce things for you, things that are somewhat reliable. It's supposed to perform tasks. Uh, you know, take、uh, large bodies of information and reduce them to something that's a little bit more manageable.、Uh, go out and you know help you, you know, manufacture some uh, uh, you know nice,、uh, yeah. <laughs> colorful <laughs>、uh, PPTs, things like this. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, at this point, it, re- it really does look a, a little bit desperate. He's、uh, giving it to his premium customers, but not clear that it'll work. Yeah. So, against the backdrop of this、um, investment boom in the generative AI, 
Some people have this worry. They they say、uh, a new kind of tech bubble is already inflating because commercialization of this particular technology, I mean generative AI, is really still at a very、um, early stage right now. What is your take on this, Ina? Uh, definitely a bubble.、Uh, people are attracted to it、uh, when it burst onto the scene with Chat AI. I mean, people just said, "Oh, this is going to change everything." You know, you had people saying it's the end of the world, end of humanity. It's going to take all my jobs, things like that. I don't think they realize that it, what it means is that a routine task can be done, but there still has to be somebody asking the right questions, and the right questions infers a higher degree of understanding. Uh, so this is going to do mostly kind of rote things, things that you have to do. Things now. Remember these these models feed on a huge amount of text taken from books, the web, wherever. But it's not that simple. They also have to be trained, and people don't realize that there are people working in Bangladesh for you know a few cents,、uh, a、um, uh, you know kind of a check mark. They they go through and they say yes, no, and maybe so this type of thing. They put it into different categories. So it's not. I don't think people really understand what goes into this and how complex it is.、Uh, until these are self-making and they're self-judging, it's going to be very difficult to、um, do this. And there's a lot of competition out there. And I just don't know that he's offering anything that's totally unique.、Mm. So we still have about like one minute to ninety seconds for this dialogue with you today, Ina.、Uh, if, like you said, it is a tech bubble. It is a new tech bubble. Then, compared to say the dot com bubble in the late 1990s and early 2000s, what do you think is、um, similar and what is、uh, different about this new bubble? Well, the tech、uh, bubble. I mean, you remember everyone had an app and they were coming up with ideas and people throwing money at it and things like this. This is really a very much you know you, small players could、uh, participate, but this is very much big players. I mean. Um, you you can come up with a,、uh, a generative AI, but until you have data、uh, and you can feed it into there, you really don't have much.、Uh, and then after you fit data in, you have to make sure that you're you're categorizing it in ways that make sense. So、uh, this is going to be a very big player things.、Uh, obviously,、um, you know the market is going to change. The big players are going to、uh, refine their offerings,、um, but. Definitely, this is a sandbox in which just a few people can play.、Mm. Big guys. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for putting this issue into perspective. That's Mr. Ina Tengen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. Unfortunately, that's all the time for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Ding Hanin Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.